Hello, we are Restoration Church Chicago and welcome to our podcast. You can connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission is to glorify Jesus everywhere, and that includes right here, right now. Thanks for tuning in. It's so good to be with you all, and I'm excited to be continuing on with our John series. I'll be wrapping up chapter 15, and it just makes me so excited for how far we have come on this journey. We've been in the same book for a little over a year, uh, just taking the time to really soak in God's word bit by bit. The verses I'm speaking from today are verses 18 through 27, and they are purely the words of Jesus. If you have one of those Bibles that sets apart Jesus' words in red ink, you will be reading an entirely red section of scripture today as you follow along with me. These words are still part of Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples, which is found in John chapters 14 through 17. So we've been there for a little bit now. Um, And they are some of the last teachings that Jesus wanted to impart to his followers. And as followers of Jesus, we can be certain that they are for us as well. I loved Vanessa's example a few weeks ago of it being like the last words you would say to your kids as they leave the house for college or just to begin a life of independence outside of your home. There would be so many things you would want to say to them, probably for the millionth time, just to ensure that they were set up for complete success. I left home at the age of 17, and my parents were missionaries in Peru, and I flew back to North America, so I was very far away from them. Um, And I remember I would get random emails from my dad every once in a while that kind of carried this sort of sentiment. The only one that stuck with me, I looked it up for today, and I have it here to read to you. It went like this. Hey there. I thought this morning as I ate my cereal, is she drinking milk? You are still growing, and if it is possible, it would be good for you to drink it. We always heard that the jugs from Max, which is a Canadian store, were less processed. You would be better to buy a small jug as you wouldn't get a big one done before it went bad. Did you get virus protection on your computer? I'm not going to stop asking you until you tell me it is there. And then he told me a little bit about his day and signed off. And I think it stuck with me. It was what finally hit home, probably because of the simplicity, that my dad was sad that I was no longer under his roof, and he no longer had the same parental relationship with me, mostly due to presence. His time of being in close proximity to me was over. Even though he could still communicate with me, it was different than if we were living under the same roof. This is the perspective from which we need to be hearing these words of Jesus. As he speaks these words, he knows everything will be changing soon. He will be physically leaving, and he is trying to set his disciples up for success. Now up until this point, the farewell discourse has been pretty encouraging. Jesus has been saying things like, do not let your hearts be troubled. You will do even greater things than these. Ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. 
Love me, obey me, I am coming back to you. Remain in me, I have loved you. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. Love each other. And then we come up against this title in the NIV version. The world hates the disciples. There are two sections in this last half of chapter 15 that I'm going to be covering, and this is the first. It is such a strong title. And verse one goes, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If I'm honest, this feels harsh because I don't need to be warned of hate to be prepared for disappointment. I only need the title to be, the world dislikes the disciples. And verse one to read, if the world dislikes you, remember that it disliked me first. So if this passage feels a little bit uncomfortable this morning, I promise you, you are not alone. I grew up in a home where the word hate was a four letter word. But we'll get through this because Jesus is saying it and we cannot pick and choose his words. And he has said, we will come up against hate if we are living faithfully for him. So let's begin reading the passage. Let's begin with verses 18 through 21. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Why is Jesus telling them this? All the positive affirmation and encouragement up until this point in his discourse makes a pretty good farewell. Maybe it would be better for the disciples to not have to worry about this just yet. At least these were my thoughts as I read the passage, and I came up with a couple of reasons for why it was necessary. And the first is much like the whole discourse, to prepare the disciples. Just going back to the parenting parallels in this discourse, in my short brief parenting experience, I have two toddlers. I've noticed that every day I have two choices. I can be a referee all day, or I can be a coach. The difference between the two is that a referee just lets the game unfold and only steps in to make calls when things are already out of control. Parenting as a referee, I would just let the day unfold and step in when my kids start fighting or they're flying off the handles. Parenting as a coach is strategic. Coaches take the time to come up with ways to prepare the players for the game. A coach will try to anticipate what the players will need to know to win and then they come up with ways to train them and ingrain the strategies so that when it counts, they are ready. When there is pressure, they are ready. Jesus is not about to just let his disciples fend for themselves and step in when absolutely necessary. He is preparing them well in advance so that they are ready to follow him even through the worst of circumstances. And much like in the game of parenting, throughout the whole farewell discourse. Everything seems to hinge on obedience. 
We've read, if you love me, obey my commandments. All who love me, do what I say. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Remain in me, and you can ask for anything, and it will be done for you. Obedience is synonymous with following Jesus. And the harder the circumstances, the harder it is to obey. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared to obey, to follow him no matter what. He is imploring them to obey because he wants what is best for them. And he knows that on the other side of obedience, there is complete joy. Jesus said a few verses earlier, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This life is temporary, but as John has emphasized all throughout his book, Jesus has the words of eternal life, and this is true joy. The second reason Jesus is telling them these things is so that they would count the cost. Jesus knows there is going to be an earthly cost of following him, and he has never withheld that truth. In the Gospel of Mark, he says that anyone who follows him must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. For some of the disciples Jesus was talking to, this call would one day be literal. Jesus knew that his disciples were going to face all these things as they carried out the mission of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. He knew that all of them would die for their faith, except for John, but it was actually a miracle because there were many attempts made on his life, and he was instead banished to an island to live alone for the rest of his days. Jesus knew his audience, and he knew this cost would not be theirs alone, but that there would be a cost for anyone who chose to follow him, for all future disciples. This form of extreme persecution is not our personal experience today, but it is in many places all over the world. For those of you who don't know, our church partners with NCMI, New Covenant Ministries International, and I follow their Instagram accounts. I follow the USA account and the global account. And a couple of weeks ago, they posted a prayer request to their global account, and it, um, it read like this. Urgent prayer request. One of our partnering churches in an unnamed region was visited by local mullahs who informed them that they should stop holding Christian meetings. They also tried to persuade them to convert back to Islam and have informed all the community to have no contact with them. Their activities in the community have become known and this has disturbed the local mosque authorities. Please pray for their protection and also for wisdom to know how they should continue with their work. Thanks so much. Details are limited for the safety of the church. This is a church within our partnership, facing persecution right now. Following Jesus comes at a cost. For all of us in this room, we are blessed to live in what is known as a Christian nation. And I'm not about to get into the whole is it or is it not conversation, but the privileges are certainly there. The freedoms we experience to express our faith are unique because they are welcomed even up until a certain point, up until we are no longer considered tolerant, right? So for us, picking up our cross daily 
and following Jesus looks like living counterculturally. We can get by, of course, living under the radar. There is no cost to us for going to church, owning a Bible, calling ourselves Christian. But if we are truly living a life surrendered to Jesus, we will encounter the hate that Jesus warns his followers of. It might not put you in jail or take your life, but nevertheless, it will be there. Maybe you experience it in close relationships where there's tension, or you sense a resistance where there used to be closeness. Maybe it sets you apart in communities or your workplace. Maybe you have lost friendships. Maybe you've been rejected or ridiculed. An old professor of mine used to say, if you are a Christian and you have no conflict in your life, are you really a Christian? In other words, if you are a disciple and you have no conflict in your life, then are you really a disciple? By now, I hope you will assume with me that anything concerning the disciples should apply to you and me. We all have, possibly are, and will face the hate of the world. But why would the world hate the disciples? Jesus says in verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The first reason Jesus gives for why the world will hate the disciples is that we are not of this world. In order to better understand this, let's properly define what the world means here. The world is, as one commentary said, the created moral order in active rebellion against God. Since the fall, everything on earth has been in rebellion against God. Whether consciously or subconsciously, we are all born fallen and without repentance and acceptance of the salvation offered by Jesus, we remain automatically pledged to the world and its rebellion against God. Rebellion is the farthest away from obedience that you can get. So it makes sense that unrepentant, the world would hate obedience and therefore those who obey. Next, Jesus says in verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. In other words, it's because they are one with Jesus. Jesus was just telling them, asking them in last week's passage to remain in him. And now he is letting them know all that that will mean, to be one with Jesus. Jesus is letting them know that everything he has had to face, they will too. If the message is not received well directly, why would it be well received from a messenger? We can also take comfort in the fact that Jesus will never ask us to do anything he has not already done. So we know he is more than capable of sympathizing with us. The last reason Jesus gives for the world's hatred is found in verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. They hate because they do not know Jesus. We have experienced Jesus, but the world has not.
When we were at the Haymarket Center, a young man walked in and asked what the meeting was. When the answer was church service, he turned around immediately and said, no, I don't believe in Jesus. And it was not an emotionless statement. And all I could think was, who misrepresented Jesus to you so badly? Because I can't imagine that he has never encountered Jesus. I can't imagine that he has never encountered Jesus for who he is, or his response would have been totally different. When Jesus reveals himself, lives are transformed and they are never the same. But even though the world does not know Jesus, does this leave them without excuse? Let's continue reading verses 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. We could get really theologically deep here, but for today and for us, I just felt to say a few things. I believe that every person is given the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Some will choose to continue in the rebellion we were all born into, and others will repent and pledge their allegiance to Jesus. There will be no excuse in the end. And we might be thinking that the people who witnessed Jesus on earth performing miracles are extra guilty for not believing Jesus, but this is not the case. Jesus says first, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. And only after that, he says, if I had not done among them the works, they would not be guilty of sin. Jesus places more emphasis on his words than his works or his miracles, and we still have his words today. Even though in times of great persecution, there were attempts made to destroy the Bible, we still have it today, and it is the most sold book when there were attempts to blot out every Christ follower and destroy the church, there was always a remnant left. Because Jesus is faithful, and until he returns, he will always make sure there is a way for people to encounter him and respond to his gospel. Another question I imagine running through the original 12 disciples' minds as Jesus tells them these things is, why would Jesus let this happen? It's the same question that runs through our minds whenever we are faced with hardship. And the answer is to grow the church in depth and width. Earlier in chapter 15, Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And even though it is not explicitly stated based on context and the reference to the vine producing fruit, it is assumed that Jesus is talking about a grapevine. I recently learned on accident, I was not researching or thinking about this series at all, um, that in order for grapevines to produce fruit, they need to be pruned within an inch of their lives. They need to essentially be dying. Now the harsh title, The World Hates the Disciples, seems a little less abrupt since the original disciples would have understood what it took to produce fruit in a vineyard, 
they would have had a different visual when Jesus was talking about pruning than we might have. The disciples knew grapevines needed to be pruned harshly, not just once, but annually, for there to be any harvest. If they are not pruned harshly, they will still grow. They will be lush and long and huge, but there will be no fruit. As much as we don't like it, it is often the harsh circumstances in our lives that produce the most fruit in our lives. It's the hardship that draws us closer to Jesus, that makes us more aware of him, more dependent on him. And then just by spending more time with him in our state of dependence, we find there to be fruit produced. And just as this is true for us as individuals, it is also true for the church. Another reason Jesus specifically allowed this to happen was for its expansion. As the, early as the early church was persecuted, they just kept moving, and they kept carrying the gospel with them from continent to continent, from courthouse to courthouse, from jail cell to jail cell. It was like the attempts made to squash their message just ended up propelling it and spreading it faster than if there had ever been a healthy, at-peace megachurch in Jerusalem. We also have to acknowledge and be aware that until Jesus' second coming, the world is still ruled by the prince of darkness. This is a fact, but it should not fill us with fear. Jesus said in the previous chapter, chapter 14, verse 30, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So we all have, possibly are, and will face the hatred of the world because the world is still ruled by the Prince of Darkness and we have pledged our lives to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And they are in direct opposition to one another. Now that I have said all that, I want to be very clear that this is not supposed to create an us versus them mentality. Sometimes passages like these can be misused within the church as a team-building exercise that creates a greater division between us and the world. This should never be. Though there is a division between the world and the church, Jesus' work on the cross is the bridge between the two, and it is for everyone. On our own, we are no different than the world. We too were once the world before Jesus chose us out of the world. And as Paul writes in Romans 7:15, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. He was talking about the battle of the flesh and the spirit, even after becoming not of the world. And this tells us that the only difference between us and them is that we have the Holy Spirit. And this means that we are all the more responsible to take the high road and show love even in the face of hate. We know better. We know Jesus. The world does not. And this transitions us into the second section for today uh, that is titled, The Work of the Holy Spirit. And I wanna use this section to answer the question how will we remain faithful if this is the kind of opposition we will be encountering? Uh, 
So read with me the last two verses, verses 26 and 27. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. We will remain faithful because Jesus has not abandoned us. He is promising his disciples once again that he will send the advocate. Other versions say the helper. And we know this is the Holy Spirit and he is alive in us. We don't even have to wait for him to be sent. It's interesting to me that Jesus gave this whole discourse, preparing the original disciples, and a few chapters later when he is arrested, the disciples flee for their lives. What made these same men able to face torture, the arena, crucifixion, and death? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made all the difference. It says specifically in these verses that the Holy Spirit will testify. Another way to say this is that the Spirit will bear witness to Jesus. He will continually reveal more and more of Jesus to the believer and to the world. As disciples, we have not been left on our own, and the Holy Spirit is in us permanently as an advocate, counselor, and helper. Nothing needs to be done on our own strength. We will also remain faithful by bearing witness ourselves. Jesus said, and you also must testify. This means we are to preach the gospel. We need to preach it to ourselves daily. It's kind of like what Hugh says often, if you're going through a hard time, worship Jesus. Tell him who he is and what he has done. He will not allow you to outgive him. And as you worship, your soul will be strengthened. We also need to bear witness to others. We need to share the gospel with the world in spite of the risks because we know it is Jesus' will for all people to come to know him. Even when we encounter the hate this passage warns us of, we should only be moved more by compassion for what they do not know. Jody Romero a pastor of a partnering church with a great evangelistic gifting always encourages believers to get over themselves and not be afraid of rejection. He always says it's not about you. Kind of like what Jesus is saying when he says a servant is not greater than his master. They will treat you this way because of my name. It is about Jesus and he is worth everything. Every risk every suffering, and of course, every victory. There will be victories because his word does not return void. And we can be sure that if we are bearing witness to him, that there will be fruit. We will see the lost get saved, and even one salvation is worth whatever the cost may have been. The experience of partnering with Jesus in his work, that in itself will help us remain faithful. The final reason I found in this passage that Jesus gives us to encourage us and help us to remain faithful actually takes us backwards in this chapter to verse 17. 
There is some discussion out there, I guess, on whether or not this verse was meant to be grouped in the last section or whether it was meant to fall under the title, The World Hates the Disciples. I'm not about to pick a side, but I did find it interesting to read in light of the verses we focused on today. And being such a crucial verse, it cannot hurt to look at it two weeks in a row. So let's read verse 17 again. This is my command, love each other. The simplicity speaks volumes. No matter what, love each other. When you are faced with hate, choose love. And especially since the world will hate you, love each other. Jesus is speaking to the church founders here, the men through whom Jesus would begin building his church. And he doesn't set them up with a business plan, a strategy, or a security system. He commands them to love each other. Jesus knows that we need each other. And it is not just for our own sakes. John 13, 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is why the church is his plan for reaching the world. It's so that the world will recognize a difference and ultimately be reached through the church as it defies hate with love. And this is how we bear fruit. So in conclusion, the world will hate us, the disciples. Jesus warns us of this so that we will be prepared to obey him, even in the hardest of circumstances, and so that anyone who wants to follow him will count the cost. This will happen because the world does not know Jesus, and in this state, it is an act of rebellion against him. Jesus allows this to happen because it will produce fruit and accomplish his mission on earth through the church, which is to save the world. This will be ongoing until his second coming, and we will be able to remain obedient or faithful because Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit as an advocate to testify and bear witness to him. And finally, Jesus' simple command to love each other brings everything back into perspective and calls us higher. Before talking about hate, there is a reminder to love. When we encounter hate from the world, we can be reassured that Jesus is with us because he gave us the Holy Spirit and we are therefore capable of continuing to obey Jesus' commands even in the face of adversity. Throughout the whole book of John, there has been a call to believe in Jesus. That is the purpose of the book. These past couple of chapters have been more so directed at the believing. And the question Jesus is asking is, will you obey? Will you remain in me, even in the worst of circumstances? When we say yes, we can know that there will be fruit. And though there may be short-term suffering, there will ultimately be complete, eternal joy. Thanks again for listening. We hope you were encouraged. Don't forget to connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram.